Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Today, the NAACP wraps up its convention celebrating its 100th anniversary with events including a speech by President Obama. Many historians consider one event to be the pinnacle of the NAACP's power. That's the Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education. It was argued by NAACP Legal Defense Fund lawyer Thurgood Marshall. Now, that was before he himself became a Supreme Court justice. The ruling ended legal segregation in schools. The Legal Defense Fund was originally affiliated with the NAACP, but in 1957, it became a separate organization. And as we prepare for tomorrow's final takeaway, broadcast on this historic week, plus a special we're doing tonight. We bring in Harvard Law Professor Lonnie Guineer to talk about the legal victories associated with the NAACP and today's legal struggles over civil rights. Professor, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So how would you characterize the legacy of the NAACP and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund? Well, I think you have to have a before and after. You mentioned that the two organizations split in 1957. And before 1957, there was essentially a litigation program that was tied to field work and a network of um, local community-based branches so that the lawyers were working very closely with the community. After 1957, when the two organizations split, and they didn't split voluntarily, they were pressured to do so after um, the the court case in Brown because the Southern politicians who had lost Brown pressured the IRS to investigate the tax status of the two organizations. And once they split, then LDF became an independent organization, even though it was the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the lawyers played much more of a leadership role independent of the local branch network of the NAACP. And as a result, you had, um, in, in many ways, a diffusion of the energy and a preoccupation or a, um, an emphasis on litigation as the solution. And you can see even um, now that many of the cases that LDF brings, and it's a terrific organization with a terrific group of lawyers, are cases in which there's no one on the streets, no one in the um, courtroom backing up the lawyers because the lawyers are bringing these cases now independently of the community. So it sounds like you're saying there's no grassroots um, at this point, even for cases like the 1999 class action suit uh, on behalf of 350,000 minority and poor bus riders against Los Angeles. I mean, there's, there's not a grassroots movement behind something like that. Well, that, that, that actually um, was a case brought by um, the LDF uh, LA branch, but the lawyer who was involved in that has left LDF and now works for something called the Advancement Project, which is trying to replicate the earlier um, approach of the NAACP and the LDF in 
terms of getting lawyers to work more intimately, more closely with community-based organizations? Connie Rice is the lawyer I'm talking about. When you take a look at this historic split um, and and perhaps go back in time to what happened between 1909 and 1957 when there was the NAACP and a building strategy of legal challenges. Describe a little bit more about what that, um, that fusion of community and local interest and legal interest might be, how it worked. Well, the... Um the branches were often at the forefront of identifying people with particular complaints about, um, for example, the, the teachers who, the, the black teachers who were concerned that they were not getting paid as much as the white teachers, the uh, blacks in South Carolina who actually took a lot of the initiative and were uh, concerned that that their that that their kids were not getting an education equal to the white kids, and in particular were concerned that the black kids had to walk to school and the white kids had buses, and they were the energy. They were in in many ways a driving force behind the lawyers who came in to shape a lawsuit that represented the interests or the issues that were being raised by the community members, and what has happened since 1957, and it's a gradual process, and in many ways I, I may be overstating the um, distinction for the purpose of making the point, but in many ways it's now the lawyers who are determining where you bring the cases, not the clients. Hmm. In, in looking at uh, the traditional history of civil rights in the United States, uh, for so long the judiciary has been uh, the the challenge mechanism for the power structure and the power elites in the United States to try to give people their uh, constitutionally guaranteed rights. With so much of the power elite now shifted, and you've got such a tremendously symbolic moment of Barack Obama speaking before the NAACP, does it in any way change the impulse of lawyers or activists within the NAACP movement or lawyers who are likely to do what the, the NAACP Defense Fund has done traditionally to, to focus on the judiciary? Maybe it's better to focus on, you know, the White House or the executive or moving into the actual uh, uh, mechanisms of power in Washington. Well, that's a very interesting question. Lawyers, particularly litigators, see their role as winning in court, and they often especially given the way we teach in law schools, they often focus on the courts as the instrument of social change. And I think what you're pointing out is that there are other ways that lawyers can play a very powerful and important role, but outside of the courts, working on legislative um, change, working on administrative change. And in fact, when I was at LDF, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, in the early 1980s, my first assignment was working on the amendments to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, wow. and we spent all of our time working in Congress. But even then, in 1981-82, the LDF was part of a larger coalition that was based in Washington but had enormous grassroots support around the country. And what I'm pointing out now, and this is in some ways a contrast between 1981-82 and 2009, is that even though you had a massive organized effort at the local level to elect Barack Obama, that was a political effort. And right. you don't have that same massive organized 
community-based focus to change the law or to even change um, legislation in Congress. Well, Professor, we want to thank you so much. And I want to point out that before you were a Harvard Law professor, before you went to Yale Law School with uh, former U.S. President Bill Clinton, before you worked in civil rights, you were a 12-year-old watching on television as an attorney for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund helped James Meredith get into the all-white University of Mississippi. Anyway, thank you so much, Lonnie Guineer. Uh, this is The Takeaway. The Takeaway is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, advancing journalistic excellence in the digital age. More information at knightfoundation.org. And by the Rockefeller Foundation and its Campaign for American Workers. More at rockfound.org. This is The Takeaway 